Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode 17 as we continue our trip through the history of the great game of baseball. If you've just found us, thanks for stopping in. If you're back again after a previous visit, thanks for coming back. And if someone gave you a heads up as to what it is we're doing here on our tiny piece of the podcast world, please do the same with a baseball or history fan that you may know. This is grassroots, so any help in spreading the word is appreciated. For those of you who are new to Hardball, in brief, this is a podcast built upon the premise that everyone has a story, and some are in part played out in ballparks across America and through our television sets. But much like an iceberg, what we see above the surface is truly the smallest part of the whole. What lies beneath the base of the story is never seen or heard unless it is sought out or asked about. I started to ask almost 20 years ago, and have started up again to find more of the men and stories to bring to you. I've stated many times that these were never intended to be interviews. These aren't Q&As, depositions. These have always been intended to be conversations, the kind you would have at a kitchen table or over a drink, or if you're lucky enough, maybe in a dugout or a clubhouse. That moment when someone is willing to open up, not to brag, but to talk about a time in their life that I, you, have an interest in and truly want to hear about. These conversations are not about numbers, but I will take care of some of those for today's guest in a second. And you better be sitting down because some of them are staggering. But let me start with this. This episode will probably be the hardest to set up and is easily the most bittersweet of any I've put together so far. So let's start with the good stuff. Anthony Keith Gwynn Sr. was a machine. What he did with a baseball bat has not been seen by anyone my age before or since. I'm 57. I've seen great hitters. I've seen players with bigger overall numbers, more home runs, more RBIs. Guys with multiples of MVPs. Guys who won more in October. Bigger stars. Problem is, we have a generation of baseball where we are left to sort out what was real. What to do or think about the numbers accumulated. Clean or not became the question. Not all, thank God, but questioning who was doing what got tiresome. I've seen the remnants of great players past their prime. Happy to say that I saw them play. Honestly, a little bit heartbroken that I only had the stories and some older footage to back up what I was told as a kid and continue to be told by the likes of Bobby Richardson, Al Kaline, Ferrozudo, Hank Aaron, and others. So what made Tony Gwynn special? In a nutshell, his ability to never put himself in a position to be at the mercy of anyone trying to get him out. That's it. It's really that simple, and hitting is far from simple. He worked his craft to never have to concede. Tony Gwynn hit 302 with two strikes for his career. Wade Boggs, his contemporary comp, hit 262, and that makes him a witch, but still 40 points below Tony. The average player in baseball, and this has gone on forever, 
in a game these days where players walk more, hit more home runs, and certainly strike out more than ever, doesn't hit 165. He struck out on average 21 times a year. Guys, many of them, do that in less than a month these days. I love this one. The man faced 18 Hall of Famers in his career, 541 plate appearances, basically a year. He had 331. I want to thank MLB.com's A.J. Cassville for that one. And in 107 plate appearances versus Greg Maddox, he hit 415 with zero, none, nada, zilch in a strikeout column. 45 four-hit games, nine five-hit games, and a six-hit game on his resume. My favorite Tony Gwynn fact, he went five years in a row without ever going 0 for 12 in any stretch. Eight batting titles, lifetime 338 average, and on and on and on. And here's the kicker. He was a better guy than hitter. So why is this one hard? Well, because Tony Gwynn is easily my favorite non-Atlanta player, and I'm telling you today, no one is ever going to change that sentence. I've had very nice relationships with a bunch of players, some you've heard in previous hardball episodes, but I've never had a better baseball relationship. Picking a time to catch up every time the Padres came in. Never a microphone or recording involved, just talking about a love and respect for the players who came before him, asking about Ted and Stan, who he idolized, being led into that world. We would arrange a time to meet up in the dugout during every Braves-Padres series, 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, way before media normally came in. Sometimes, though, after a game when he paid the ultimate respect and said to pull up a chair, something you never do unless asked. And I know for a fact that any credibility that I now have when talking to pitchers and hitters and managers and front office guys on a level that perhaps will get me more, not less from them, is steeped in those conversations with Tony and a handful of others. I called many guys just to say hello over the years, to ask how they were doing, and really to let some of them know that they were still being thought of. Ralph Branca, Jim Bouton, Tony Kubek, Carl Erskine, Eldon Auker, Dom DiMaggio, Al Kaline, and many of the older gentlemen of the game. With Tony, when he was retired, it was a call to his office at San Diego State. Of course, he went back to manage at his alma mater to teach the next generation not only how to play the game, but how to carry themselves as they tried to master the unmasterable. To teach that failure in baseball is everywhere. Could you handle it to reach the next success was always the question. Tony announced his retirement on June 28, 2001, three months, and that would be it. I knew that meant it would include one last trip through Atlanta. It wouldn't be vintage Tony, but I knew he would at least make one appearance. And that's exactly how it went. One at-bat in three games. A pinch-hit appearance and everyone in the building knew what they were seeing and acted accordingly. An ovation that warranted stepping out of the box more than once to wave his helmet. It was too much to hope that he would rip a double to the gap or even more fittingly slap a single through the five-and-a-half hole. He flew out in the eighth inning to another ovation as he made his way to the Padres' dugout. And that was it in Atlanta. I have a few things in my basement that will let you know that I've been very lucky to have what at times has been the only thing better than a front-row seat. The invitation to get inside the rope. One of my favorites is a scorecard from that series, August 21st, 2001, that Tony signed and sent to me with a note that said, till we speak again, you know where to find me. Tony has been gone for six years, and I'm sad, actually sadness, as I record this. Here you go, the one conversation that the record button was pressed for my time with Hall of Famer and baseball friend, Tony Gwynn. 1-1 one, one delivery, a loop into left center field, coming off past the center fielder, can he get it? No, it dropped. That's really not studying the hitter very well. Here's Alomar, and he's getting quite a hand, and that's 1,000 hits for Tony Gwynn. And there it is. He said he was going to do it, and he does. He's four for four with two singles, a double, and a homer, and he's a triple away from the cycle. The pitch. Line drive into left center field. Base hit. He's five for five. Incavilla over to get it and returns it to the infield. There'll be no triple and no cycle. 
but yet another five-hit performance for Gwen and another standing O. Drive right center field, base hit, and there it is. Oh, doctor, you can hang a star on that, baby. A star for the ages for Tony Gwynn, number 3,000. His name is Tony Gwynn. I've had the great pleasure to speak to him in the past. We'll do it again tonight. Tony, thanks very much for your time tonight. How you doing? Very good. How about yourself? Good. I was listening to that sound bite about saving money. I thought I was listening to a college coach. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know a little bit about budgets now, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're going to go down to the Padres and maybe take those balls that they don't necessarily use anymore? No, because we play with a different ball. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to him about that. It was a thought when I first retired. But What about different. the wood versus aluminum? Are you going to be able to get used to that ping instead of the crack? It's it's a lot different. It's a lot different. I, I volunteered here this year, and there's nothing like the sound of a ball hitting a wood bat. And I don't think you ever get used to the ting, but uh, uh, but it's been fun. It's, Tony, it's, it's been very interesting. Would you ever encourage a kid who was a major league prospect to pick up wood before he actually got to his first minor league camp? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we use wood during the, during the fall, and we won't swing aluminum at all until we get ready to start our spring practice. Now, why is that? Because I want guys to understand that it's different hitting with wood. It's a lot more difficult to hit a baseball with wood. And in working on your mechanics of hitting with wood, you should be better with aluminum. And and what I found out this particular year is that guys hit, they learn to hit with wood, and they get to the point where, you know, they can hit the ball on a barrel pretty consistently. And then when they get aluminum, they just go back to doing the old, doing it the old way. And you would think their confidence would soar just having the aluminum in their hand after Absolutely. they master wood, but it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. They make more mistakes with aluminum because they know they can get away with it. And the habits maybe get a little bit lazy. Absolutely. Tony, all-time Padres stolen base leader. Who is it? That's me. Yes, it is. Yeah. I just figured we'd start one of those out with. <laughs> who the hell would know that you're the all-time stolen base leader Nobody. for the San Diego Padres? Nobody. Well, they, they might figure. Because I played there 20 years, that you know the accumulation would have to get pretty close. No offense, Tony. I don't even think if people thought along those lines, they'd think you were the stolen base leader. You actually used to steal bases. Oh, yeah. I stole 56 bags one year. I'll guarantee you nobody knew that. Oh, yeah. 56 of, 60, 56 of 68. And, you know, that's a pretty good ratio. My, my goal was 75% because I wasn't really a... Mm-hmm. I wasn't really a tactician, you know, <laughs> stealing. You know, I, 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 I had to learn how to steal bases, and once I, once I got it, I, I was pretty successful at it. Future Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn joining us. Tony, now that we know something that we didn't necessarily know about you, is there anything that we as the average guy don't know about the game of baseball? Big picture, is there something you can tell us that might surprise us from your point of view about the game of baseball? Uh, something we don't know. That the average fan doesn't know? That yeah. Well, I think the average fan knows it's very difficult. I think the average fan uh, understands that there's a lot of work that goes into it, but what? I don't really think the average fan understands just exactly how much work. What would you hit if you knew for a year you were only going to see fastballs? And this goes back to how difficult it is, change-up sliders, forkballs, and everything else. If you knew you were getting fastballs and guys had to pinpoint fastballs, seriously, what do you think your average would be for I'd a year? i hit over 500. You would? Yeah. Probably more than that. Just because... The fastball is the easiest pitch to hit, mm-hmm. especially if you know it's coming. You know, the thing – but it gets back to mechanics again. I mean, even – you know, you take your best hitters in the game today and, and tell them a fastball's coming, it, it, they still have some trouble hitting it just because their mechanics aren't good. The guys who are mechanically sound, you know, your, your guys who 
or, or like tacticians up there, like Bonds, you wouldn't get him out. Mm-hmm. You would not get him out if he knew just fastballs were coming because his mechanics are so good. You know, and he probably wouldn't hit many singles. They'd they'd all be homers. Yeah, souvenirs, <laughs> souvenirs for everybody that showed up at the ballpark that night. <laughs> hey Tony, as, yeah. you, as you watch Luis Castillo doing what he's doing right now, you know, as amazing as that stolen base thing that we just talked about might be, mm-hmm. do you think most people know you don't have a thirty-game hitting streak in your repertoire? Yeah, I well, I, I doubt it. I doubt it just because I was really good at putting a bat on the ball, and you you'd think a guy who put the bat on the ball as much as I did, that you know, to have a thirty-game hitting streak, but. But does that not tell you how ridiculously difficult this is? Absolutely. You know, that you're you're right. I mean, then that's there's a lot that goes into the hitting streak too. It's just like it's just like hitting a baseball. I mean, the same kind of mentality goes into it and and because I kind of try to think it through, you know, I, I realized early on I had a twenty five game hitting streak, which is my longest one in my second year in the big leagues. And I realized that, you know, hitting streaks even though they're difficult, even though you'd love to have a, a nice long one, that a lot of times the longer it goes, the more difficult it becomes because now pitchers don't have to throw you a strike. Mm-hmm. And that's how I looked at it. You know, obviously, you know, Castillo's probably just going up there and just trying to get a hit, pitch to hit and hit it, you know. But when you when you base everything over the course of 162 games like I did, I knew that I was going to be more successful when I could hit a pitch that I could handle and not a pitch the pitcher wanted me to handle. And that's when a hitter knows he's in the right place, when his mindset and the physical part is all together. That's correct. Absolutely correct. You did a series with Stan Usual for the Sporting News. Right. Um, I'd like to ask you initially, how amazing was it, and I don't know how many times you had met him before that, I'm assuming you might have bumped into him and talked hitting, but to actually sit down and hear his answers and intertwine them with yours, was that about as big a thrill as you can have off the field? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially knowing what type of hitter he was and knowing, you know, how he tried to think everything through. And and, and really for me, some of the best moments I've had as a professional were sitting down and talking hitting with guys. Who else? Willie Mays, Ted Williams. I think everybody mm-hmm. knows about Ted Williams. Yep. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Joe Morgan. You know, just picking their brain because as a hitter, you have your own thoughts, you have your own ideas about how things are going to happen and how 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 you visualize things happening. But I think it's, it's so weird sometimes to sit down, like in that interview with Sam Usual, we were sitting down and we were talking about, you know, just having an inkling that you knew what was coming. You'd been in that situation before, and you knew what was coming. And Stan described it like. He'd be standing in a box, and, and it's like a little miniature Stan, Stan Musial was standing on his shoulder saying, here comes the fastball, dummy, be ready. And that's not necessarily guessing because you, both no, of you guys pointed not. out it's an educated, I think I know what I'm supposed to know in this at-bat. Absolutely. Yeah. And see, the, and, and the trick comes with, okay, you, you've been in this situation before, you think you know what's going to come, and when it comes, you hit it. If it's anything different, you take it. And see, the average guy, he gets in that situation, he thinks he knows what's coming, and he doesn't get it, he swings anyway. And that's, now he's in the hole. That's where he's guessing. See, and it's, it's different, and, and good hitters will understand what I just said. Tony, you mentioned a couple of the gentlemen that you've had a chance to sit down with. Um, did you vote, I mean seriously vote, on that all-century team? Did you punch out a ballot yourself? No, I didn't. Wh- why not? They didn't They didn't let us. You, we shouldn't have. I, I don't think. I, I mean, I... Excuse me, I know the, the the average fan got a chance to vote. Right. And B 
being a player, I didn't look at myself as the average fan. I okay. felt like I was a player. and so Did you think in your head how you might have started punching that thing out? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. H- how did you end up? Because uh, I'm going to tell you right now, a guy who comes out with a background and, you know, the rep of, hey, I don't know what kind of player this guy's going to be. I believe you finished 13th outfielders all time in that vote. How right. my, What's more mind-boggling to you, eight batting titles, 98 Silver Slugger Awards, or whatever the hell it is you won, <laughs> or being 13th in that all-century voting? <laughs> being 13th, yeah. that's uh, You know, I couldn't believe I was ahead of a few, <laughs> a few <laughs> other guys that, that uh that that I you know either grew up watching or or you know knew their reputations that is really mind boggling when you really think about it now, you know because when I was uh you know there was a lot of arguments about who should have been on that team I know Roberto Clemente was left off that team and I saw him play an awful lot as a kid and really loved his style of play and the way he played the game. The one that choked me, though, more than anybody else, Frank Robinson. Frank yeah, Robinson, if he's, if he's not one of the top ten outfielders of all time, I know nothing. No, I know. I know. I know. And see, that's, you know, the beauty of the game of baseball is that everybody has their opinion. Everybody has their favorite guys. Everybody mm-hmm. has their reasons why they, you know, like in your case, you can't believe he didn't make the top ten. Other people's case, they can't believe Roberto Clemente wasn't part of that all-star team. And it goes on and on. And that, to me, that's the beauty of the game. It's, it's when you're playing the game, you don't worry about that stuff. You let other people deal with it. And now that that I'm not playing, I mean, I, I just voted. I just filled out a ballot for the All-Star team. That's the first time I've done that and, you know, and since I was a kid. You're going to stuff the ballot box at all, or are you going to keep it on the up no, and up? No, I just vote, I voted one time. All right, good for I, you. I voted one time, and I tried to vote fairly. And, and You're a baseball fan now. That's right, I am. I'm, I'm still a fan, and I still watch the game, and still, you know, realize that, uh, you know, it's only the very best play in the big leagues. And, and, and so I try to vote fairly, and hopefully my guys will get in. Tony Gwynn joining us tonight on Budweiser's Hardball Legends of the Game. Tony, I just want to ask you a little bit about your beginnings. And I mentioned the rep, you coming out of college. It's a two-parter. What did you think was possible for you as a baseball player? As a baseball player, I thought that I hit the ball good enough that I would get an opportunity to play but I honestly didn't think I was good enough and thought I'd you know, play two or three years and you know would have the distinction of being able to say I played the big leagues for two or three years. And get it out of your system and be right. able to be okay with that. Right. Okay, relative success. I mentioned you're going to the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to ask you about something I believe you said that I've got to ask what it was you were thinking. But if you could have had relative success, the success you had in baseball, in basketball, which would you have chosen? Which oh, career? basketball. No doubt, huh? No doubt. If I was three inches taller, oh, I'd have played basketball, no doubt about it. Were you I, good I, enough if you had those three inches to play in the NBA? I think so. I, I know when I first got to the big leagues, Danny Ainge said he was a great, he was a good college player, but I don't think he could have cut it in the mm-hmm. NBA. Uh, I think so, you know, but it, it's kind of the same thing in baseball. Baseball, you always had to prove yourself. Right. And basketball would have been no different. There would have been doubters. There were guys who said I was too big then, you know, and so – they're they're always going to be doubters, but you know the thing nobody can measure is how much heart you got. And and playing a game of baseball, that's that's how I got to the point. That's how I got to where I got is because I just outworked everybody. I was more determined than anybody, and and you know I practiced what I preached. And so, you know, the hardest thing about retirement is getting is not being able to leave my house at one o'clock and go to the ballpark. That was that I knew that was going to be the hardest thing because part of your preparation. It started early, you know. You go to the video machine, you watch that night's opposing pitcher, and and then you put together your game plan. You go out, you work on an extra hitting, you work on an batting practice, you take your ground balls and fly balls, and then you then you go out and execute. 
I, I read something you said that you intimated pretty strongly that if you didn't get 3,000 hits, let me ask you, if you had 2,910 hits, do you think you would have been a Hall of Famer? No. You think you needed the three in front of Absolutely. that four-digit number? Absolutely. I felt like I needed a three to justify everything else that I did. Because when I first started, I, well, you know, in the middle of my career, you know, I was a singles hitter. You know, I was accused of being selfish. I was accused of a lot of things, you know. And to what, me, what, the, Can I ask you, Tony, what is selfish in baseball terms? What does that mean? Well, selfish in baseball terms is, like, for my type of hitting, is just going out and getting my hits and not really worrying about anything else. M- moving and running over, doing the things. Yeah, that- I, I guess. And that's for for me, yeah, because I was a number two hitter. Right. Moving the runner over, uh, bunting him up. You know, I didn't care about all those things. All I cared about was getting my hit, getting my two hits a day, and going home. Could you have hit home runs if you wanted to be a home run hitter? Not till later on in my career. Not until after I met Ted Williams, because the way he explained it, he forced me to think about it. He forced me to to try to understand what he was talking about and how I should, you know, try to be able to drive the ball out of the ballpark. And it took me. You know, from the time I met him at the All-Star Game here in San Diego in 92, mm-hmm. and it took me to about the middle of 95 to understand exactly what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. If you had gotten that advice too early and decided, hey, I could be a home run hitter, would that have screwed you up? Yeah, it would have. It would have. It, it took me, i say it took me a good seven, eight years to really understand what I, what type of hitter I was and why I, why I had the kind of success I had. It took me seven or eight years to understand it. It took me seven or eight years of playing in the big leagues before I realized that you know other people might have a better way. Other people might have a, a better uh, idea about how to get the other parts of the game done for mm-hmm. me. And so meeting Ted Williams in '92, it was really the right time. I had 12 years in the big leagues, and and you know I'd been this contact hitter, this guy you know hit 340, 350. And, you know, I was looking, really, I was looking to upgrade. And so when I talked to Ted Williams, you know, he put the thought in my head that, you know, I could hit the ball out of the ballpark. And I met him in 92. We got into it really in 94, talking about, you know, handling the ball inside and and being aggressive on it. And really by the middle of 95, I, I finally understood what the heck he was talking about. Well, you had another memorable meeting with Ted Williams and the baseball world was watching. I was in Fenway Park, 1999, the All Century Team All Star Game. Right. You're out there with Ted Williams. Right. Everybody knows about the San Diego connection. Right. You asked him, and I interviewed Ted Williams, by the way, after that. You asked him to do something with a baseball that I didn't think he was ready to do. I'm serious about this. He throws a strike, and if anybody remembers what we're talking about, he's on the mound, all-century team candidates all around him. Right. You're standing there. You're the closest one to him, right? Yep. Did you tell him, ask him to throw that pitch? Well, he asked me first, where was home plate? Right. And I told him, it's right in front of you, just let it go. And I personally, I thought he was having trouble seeing where Carlton Fist was because he was the one he was throwing it to. And I told him, just let it go. It's right, he's right in front of you. And he did, and it was a strike. How perfect is it? Because that could have been a bad moment in a couple of different ways, but you talk about coming through. Hell, I know the guy had a whole bunch of hits and a whole bunch of home runs. <laughs> that might have been the most clutch thing he's ever done. <laughs> And and you know what? Seriously, I was about to blame you because I really thought, man, if this is a disaster, I think Tony told him to throw it. Well, he told me his his son, John Henry, Mm -hmm. was standing behind us, and and I had done the same thing for him in San Diego when he thrown out the first pitch. So he asked for me to come out and hold him up and make sure he didn't fall when Mm -hmm. he threw it. And and when he looked in, he couldn't really see where Carlton was, and I, I just said, 
I said, Mr. Williams, he's right in front of you. Just let it go. And, and he, he did. did. He threw a strike. Carlton ran out there, and he hugged him, and he <laughs> and he yelled. He told him something in his ear I can't repeat on the radio, but he basically said, man, you still got it. <laughs> what did and, he say, something about him having brass balls or something along those exactly. lines? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly. You heard it. Yeah, fighter and he, pilot. And so he he is really one of the most unique people you'll, you'll ever want to meet. And... Um, I just he just taught me so much just through conversation. I mean, we talk about things he didn't show me. You know, he didn't he didn't grab a bat and say, "Hey, you got to do it like this." And this this is what this is what Hall of Fame guys do usually is when they describe something or explain something to you, they explain it to you in a way that makes you think about it, that makes you want to work on it. Mm-hmm. And if you and if you're worth your salt, you're going to figure it out. And if you're not, you're just going to let it go in one ear and out the other. Finishing up with Tony Gwynn tonight on Budweiser's Hardball Legends of the Game. Tony, just a couple of quick things. Um, what do you know now, or did you know now at the end of the, your career that you didn't know then in the beginning? What did you figure out? I mean, maybe in this whole twenty-year journey. For me, I figured out that it's not as tough as we make it out to be. And I say that because it's it's like you described. It's a journey. It's a journey. And it's a journey in which if you pay attention, you could really excel at this game. And if you don't, then you can you can be an average guy. Or you can be a guy that has success early and fades late, you know. It, 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 this game can be whatever it is you want it to be. But the the one common denominator is is that you got to work at it. Can it screw you up if you would have known that in the beginning? That I don't have to make it too difficult. Maybe the drive... Maybe. Yes, I yes, I think I think that's I think that's what happens to a lot of guys who get to the big leagues mm-hmm. that you know they they give it too much we give them too we give other players too much credit until we understand how they do what they do. And it's the same in professional in the big leagues as it is in the minor leagues, it's the same in college as it is in the minor leagues, it's the same in high school as it is in college is that we put so much into it. We put we give these guys so much credit and if we just focus in on the things that we need to do, then if you once you get a grasp of the things that you need to do, then the game becomes a whole lot easier. I'm going to use the word pressure, and I don't know if it's correct or not, but more pressure in your first at-bat or in your last at-bat? More pressure in my last at-bat. And it, it's not pressure, pressure I put on myself. Pressure I put on myself because I wanted to go out the door with a knock between short and third. The infamous five-and-a-half hole. Absolutely. And I, I went up to the plate knowing... That that's how if I'm gonna go out, that's how I wanted to go out. First and pitch I, swinging, right? I yeah, I tried to do it. I was just a tick early. And I hit <laughs> it right, hit it right at the shortstop. Tony, last thing for you: when you clean, I know you clean out your locker after every season. Yeah, but when you did it for the last time, and, and I know you've talked a lot about that lap around the stadium and mm-hmm. watching the players from the '82 game come out, and mm-hmm. but when you cleaned out your locker for the last time. Did you find stuff that you had forgot? I mean, was there a place where you had stuff that was older than a year old? <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> I mean, what kind of stuff do you actually yeah, find after 20 years? Yeah, there were a lot of things in there. I had stuff in my locker from 19, because when we re- re- reconfigured our locker room in the late 80s, and from how it used to be, it used to be just a regular square locker room, and they changed the configuration of it. When I cleaned out my locker that last night, and this was really late because after the ceremony and everything and guys had gone home, Bruce Bochy, Phil Nevin, and Trevor Hoffman made me stay and and have a beer with them. And so I ended up staying another hour and a half after everybody else left. And so when I started to clean out my locker as I was wiping the tears away, I started to find stuff from 1990 
giveaway <laughs> gifts we <laughs> we gave away in ninety ninety one. the great wristband night. Absolutely, yeah. We had uh, we had McDonald's wristband night, and there were some <laughs> McDonald's wristbands in there, and there were caps from when we were wearing brown and gold. And, you know, I mean, it's just a lot of stuff, and and I just packed it all up in a couple of you know, actually it was like four or five boxes. And I took it home, and I, and I haven't even messed with it since I got it home. So I know there's you know there's going to come a time where I had to clean that out. Is it too soon to actually go take that stuff out and kind of clean it out? I think it, it is. Yeah, I think it is. Like I haven't even watched the tape of that last. Really? Week. Yeah, because you know I was pretty I was pretty good that night. I didn't I didn't break down that night, and uh, and I know when I look at it, I will. And so I I'm, I'm going to wait a little while before I start to look at it. You hold on to most of your stuff. I know you gave a jersey, I believe, and some other stuff from your last season, last weekend, right, to the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I did. I, 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 I did because, see, I'm not a big collector of my stuff, really. Mm-hmm. I, I, what I did, I had so much extra stuff, I, I sold it to the fans, and the money we raised from that went to, uh, to our program here at San Diego State. Well, good and for so you. All that money is still sitting up in my account waiting for me to take over. But I, I have my game, my jersey from my last game, and my bat and my shoes, and I gave the other half my pants and other stuff to the Hall of Fame. But I really don't. I really don't keep too much stuff other than All Star Game jerseys. That was my one thing that I really like to keep. What would your team do if you came in tomorrow and said, "Boys, we're wearing the brown and gold. We're going to throw back to the Padres days." No, oh, they would have a fit. Oh yeah, I tell you, you know. But it's funny because it's kind of coming back. I mean, they, when they move into the new ballpark in 2004. Mm-hmm. You know, people are talking about whether they should go back to the brown. And you, I mean, I see the brown stuff in videos now. I see them, you know, in other ballparks. You know, the hip hop <laughs> craze is taking over. And a it's lot of people, so ugly, it's a lot tempting. Of people, a lot of people start to wear it, man. And, and, you know, a lot of people think it looks good. But me, I could never wear brown again. I don't wear brown slacks. <laughs> I don't wear brown anything. You're done with that part of your That's life. That's correct. Hey, Tony, last thing for you. And, and again, I really appreciate your time tonight. I've re- enjoyed the work, by the way, on ESPN. Well, and thank I wouldn't, you. I wouldn't just tell you that because I have not been known to just tell people things because I think they want to hear them. I do enjoy your perspective that you brought to the booth. Well, thank you. I think it's it's a lot like baseball. You really got to work at it. Well, and, uh, good for you. So far, so good, I would say, in that. But I, I've got to ask, when we were talking about this earlier today, you mentioned, you know, 20-year career. Physically speaking, people said in the beginning you might have been selfish. I heard people, and, and I'm not going to lie, we were in conversations, and I was part of them, where, boy, if Tony either had a different body or worked to have a different body, who knows what might have been. Is there any truth to any of us feeling that way? No, there isn't. Because part of, part of the reason why it worked for me was the, the type of body that I had. Mm-hmm. You know, I after about my third year in the big leagues, I realized that, you know, for my weight transfer, you know, I needed the strong legs, and that's what I really worked on. And, yeah, I had a gut, and I probably could have looked a little bit better, but, I, I mean, it's not like I just sat back and I didn't do anything. Yeah, you, you know, weren't I playing. Said, no, nobody accused you of playing Sunday night softball. Absolutely. I mean, I worked at it. I, I worked at it a whole lot more my last ten years than I did my first ten years. But you know, I, I other than that, there's not very very much I can say. I mean, you know, I worked at my craft. I hired trainers. I changed my diet. I tried a lot of different things. Were but, your eyes as good at the end as they were in the beginning? No, no, I didn't see as good at the end. When I started playing, I was twenty ten. And it stayed 2010 really until about 1996 or seven, and then you know I'm, I'm at 2015 now, and that's still better than average. But 
Is as tw- a hitter, as a hitter, you notice. You notice the difference. Really? Is 2010 x-ray vision, by the way, for us normal folks? No, 2010 is pretty good, though. Yeah. 2010 is good enough to see it come out of somebody's hand, and 2015 is is almost as good enough to see it out of somebody's hand. Tony, were there nights in the last couple of years where you looked down at your knees and you cursed at him, or you just, I no. mean, do you, get, you don't get angry about no, stuff like that? No, they gave me all they could. Okay. They gave me, they gave me all they could, and... You know, 20 years was the right number, and, you know, I finished my last year being a pinch hitter, and I didn't really like it, but that's really all I could do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people still criticize me for not taking it at bat in the All-Star game, and the reason why is because I don't know if I could have got the first. You know, Bobby Valentine, all the guys on the National League side that night were trying to force me to go out there and take it at bat. And they were just going to throw me up there. I wasn't on the active roster, but they were going to throw me up there anyway. <laughs> would that have been legal, by the way? I don't think so, but I don't think anybody would have cared. <laughs> no, I don't you think know? so like, either. I don't think anybody would have cared unless I'd have been like Ripken and hit a home run. Then it might have been different. But, you know, the reason why I didn't is because I couldn't get the first. And there's no sense having the world know that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I, Chris Berman still rags me to this day for not going up there. And, oh, Chris Berman, is, him, he has I, no right ragging anybody. I know I you told, work well, with him you now. Know, they wanted to see it. You know, people wanted to see it. I think people in the stands that night wanted to see it. People in both benches wanted to mm-hmm. see it. And, I, you know, on our side, at least, I had to explain to guys, that, hey, you know, my knee's killing me. I don't know if I can get there. Tony, knowing what you know, is it going to be you, Cal, and Mark McGuire up in Cooperstown all in the same uh, weekend? I hope so. I, You know, I don't take it for granted that I'm going to get there. And people, you know, all the time introduce me as future Hall of Famer. And believe me, I'm flattered. But, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, that that I think should be there that aren't. Mm-hmm. So you always keep – I always keep that in mind. And so I'll wait my five years and see what happens. Well, I dare I say, July five years from now, have a reservation at the Cooperstown Inn. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, say hello to Stan and all the boys when they're on stage with you, because I think you're getting there. You can bring all of those silver silver sluggers, and, and again, I think it was 96 was the official count on the silver sluggers. Yeah, it was, uh, it was eight. Damn, that's a lot of hardware. It is. It's, it's, uh, you feel blessed to be able to do all of that. Well, good stuff. for you for getting it, by the way. In the big picture, I mean, you get it. You had a career, no bemoaning the fact that it might have been this, it might have been that. It was a hell of a run. You yeah. seemed to have enjoyed and thought you got everything you possibly could out of heart, body, and soul. I did. No regrets, and that's the greatest way to leave any job. That's that's why it's, e- that's why it's easier for me to do something else because I, I do. I feel like I got all I could get out of it, and it was a great ride, and I really enjoyed it, but... You know, there comes a time in everybody's professional baseball career that they got to do something else, and I'm thrilled to death to be doing what I'm doing. Well, now the pressure's on. Tony Gwynn, head baseball coach, coming up next year at San Diego State. And good Absolutely. Lord. <laughs> Oklahoma or bust, my friend. They're going to be. And, and this, this team of yours better hit 490 with aluminum bats, You're by the right. way. Tony, listen, appreciate the time very much. Continue good luck with everything on ESPN. Seriously, good luck as you get ready for fall baseball this year, taking over the reins out there, and uh, greatly appreciate the time you spent here tonight. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Tony. Have a great right. night. You too. Thank you. 2-2. Two, two. A line drive in the left. Norton will not. Can't get it. It's passive. 31-41 for Quinn with an RBI double. Hey, hey, number 19. Running in the red field grass so green. When you played that game, you played to win. I'm talking about Tony Gwynn. When I hit I thought the center field was going to catch because he had a good jump and he dove and just missed it and rolled to the wall. And I standing at second and then Pete Rose comes up to me and shakes my hand and, and says uh are you trying to catch me after one night you know and it just it, the whole atmosphere of that was just was really nice seven silver sluggers and five gold gloves to his game we jumped
to our feet when the announcer spoke his name. as heck to be a San Diego Padre. I played for one team. I played in one town. I told the people of San Diego when, we, when I left to come to Cooperstown, they were going to be standing up here with me. So this is a tremendous honor to be here today. So thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, hey, thing about him that even if you didn't know him, you felt like you knew him. Tony's life is a perfect uh, lesson on how to live it. One of the most signature things about Tony that everybody understood is that laugh. <laughs> Can you do his laugh? I can't. I, I, I. You got to get that, that, that hoarseness of, of, of the throat. <laughs> It started way down deep in his gut, and it worked its way up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't, I try, you cannot replicate it. <laughs> he was uplifting. So did Just to be around him, that's why people loved him. That incredible laugh that I keep on my phone, by the way. <laughs> it's the laugh, it's the person, then the ball player.